Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and you're listening to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today's episode is an episode that we have taken from a webinar that we ran with Sally Stewart from Link Business Broking New South Wales and Michelle Taylor of Marketing Practices. And in this webinar, we talked about the legal process when you're planning to buy a medical, dental or allied health practice. Sally and I talk about the steps that buyers have to go through in the business buying process and the best ways to do them. We also reveal what red flags you need to know about when doing your due diligence, what your deal team should look like, and how the right lawyer can help make the entire deal not only successful, but less stressful. We've got an interesting discussion, so let's begin. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to session three of Path to Purchase, the online summit for aspiring practice owners. We're so thrilled that you can join us once again this evening. We had a massive turnout last night. We're hoping for the same tonight, and I can see a whole bunch of participants now entering our webinar room, which is fantastic. Now, we'd love to know where you're from and what profession you are. Are you a medical doctor? Are you a specialist, allied health? Are you a a dentist? Let us know because we really would love to know who's in the room so that we can tailor-make some of our discussions based on um, on what you are. We've got um, Ahmed from Nara, a GP registrar. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as we get through this this session, last night we had so many questions. We fielded over 20 questions from you all and we are more than happy to do that all again tonight. We've got a, a Q&A session at the end and we will we will stay back and answer all the questions because last night we just kind of kept going and, and everybody kept asking the questions and everybody seemed to stay. So we're going to try and finish up at 9pm but if we go over because there are questions we will stay back and answer those questions because we're here for you and we've put this time aside for you to help you in your path to purchase that path of buying a practice. It's it's scary path and it's very daunting and tonight we've got a fantastic session. We're going to talk about the legal process, the legal path of purchasing a practice and tonight we've got Joanna Oki um, who is our awesome lawyer who's going to give us so much insights into the legal process and all of those um, questions that you may have and our wonderful Sally is back and she's going to be doing all the all the question asking. Now one thing that we have absolutely loved over the past couple of days, our inboxes have been just inundated with people thanking us and being showing us a lot of gratitude for having these sessions and running this whole summit. And, you know, we, we are so grateful for that feedback because this is something that we're trying new, that, that we're wanting to help people and um, we brought all this together to see if this was the best way to do it. So, um, so grateful for that. 
that feedback. Love hearing it. And, um, you know, if you've got any feedback going forward, we're always happy to um, make this better for you because that's what we're here for. So throwing over to you, Sally, for session three, um, we're going to talk about all things legal. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks, Michelle, for the great introduction. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for coming on board tonight. Hello, Sally. <laughs> You're probably exhausted after a full day in a legal office. Um, are you guys busy at the moment? Like, are, are you busy or are you quiet? Or tell us what a day is like at your place at the moment. Yeah, look, we are flat chat at the moment, um, Sally. Um, we, we, I, I guess COVID was a really interesting time for business sale and acquisitions, as you know. <laughs> right, we were, um, we, we were actually just absolutely going berserk just before COVID. COVID hit. Um, and the brake screamed on. But I tell you what, it's really, you know, it, it's um, it's really moving now. We, we're probably sitting on, I think we've got something like 20 to 23 current deals, so business sales and acquisitions um, that we're working on um, at the moment. So, yeah, we, we are we're very busy. How about you guys, Sally? So it sounds like buyer confidence is back from your perspective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, uh, actually, you, you know, one thing that's interesting in this market that we're seeing is um, is we're having buyers miss out on deals at, at the moment because they're just not moving fast enough because, I mean, you've probably seen this, but there's more buyers than sellers in the market at the moment. I mean, that's our experience. So I, I don't know, is that what you're seeing as well, Sally? Yeah. So seller's market these days, I had a, a lovely GP practice out in Western Sydney, five doctors all remaining profitable, stable, been there a long time. I had an offer and the doctor said, thank you for your offer. I'll take it under consideration. Please go away and get your finance pre-approved. So she got that back yesterday, but two days ago, so it must have been on Saturday, there was an offer lodged. So we had second site visit Saturday. Overnight, Sunday, I had the offer in my inbox. It was presented to the doctor on the Monday. On the Tuesday, he accepted it. And then the, the first buyer missed out today. She got her finance pre-approved, but she missed out by literally one day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a market when you want, and, and in fact, this is a lot of what I want to talk about today, just, but more than ever, it's a market when buyers, you know, just, um, just need to be ready to go. I think ready to hit the ground running because, you know, when that deal comes up and you want to, you, you know, you find that perfect practice that you want to acquire, you, you've got to move fast. Um, you know, it's not the same for every business, but certainly we're seeing a lot of businesses that are falling into that category at the moment. Businesses that are desirable, they're not just going to be desirable to one person. Yeah. So they're really going to have to act quickly with alacrity. As you said, they need to have their team around them. They need to have their pre-approved finance done. They need to have a, a, a legal person in their team. They need yeah. to have a business entity already created. Boom, we can go to heads of agreement and contracts. But that leads me in to what I wanted to talk about in terms of the steps. So could you perhaps talk through the steps that a buyer is going to be processing through when they're buying a, a business? Yeah, of course I can. Absolutely. Well, I sort of see the um, 
you, you know, the legal steps in acquiring a business in sort of two different ways. So I want to talk about this in, in two ways. The first way is sort of a chronological sense. So I just want to step everyone through like the A to Z of what the, the process is. Yeah. But then I want to also just talk about a bit of a methodology approach to what the steps are because they're a little bit different um, and, and it makes a really big difference in an acquisition to understand both areas. So, so just starting with... Remembering that some of our buyers have never done this before. Yeah. Excellent point, Sally. Excellent point. <laughs> keep it simple. That's okay. We we will do that. And you call me out, Sally. I want you to call me out. <laughs> if 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 there's any things that you think I should go into in more detail. Um, and guys, um, can, can I just say I'd really I love it if you can throw questions as well to us in the chat. Um, as we go and if we see it um, and we've got Michelle here looking as well I'm happy to throw in some answers along the way as well if you want me to drill into some of these areas um, deeper so okay so let's talk about just the simple one two three of the legal process um, in buying a business so the first step is to find a practice <laughs> so that's where you come in Sally put your hand up <laughs> You, that's you. That's you, Sally. <laughs> okay, so the first step um, is find the practice. And then the second step um, is to make an offer, obviously. Um, so the third step is, is that getting that commercial terms sorted. And the commercial terms can then sit in a document um, that we call, it can be called many, many different things. And quite often, the fact that there's so many different names confuses buyers, I think. But we can call this your commercial terms, or your heads of agreement, or a memorandum of understanding, sometimes called an MOU, um, or a term sheet. Doesn't matter what you call it, the whole idea of it is it's a document that sets out the deal between the parties um, and, and it's generally signed by the parties. So you've got some form of commitment, some form of agreement. Um, At that stage, Joanna, is it legal and binding? Yeah, so, so it, um, usually no, um, but sometimes there can be components of it that are legally binding. So sometimes, for example, um, it makes sense for a buyer, and, it, and it's actually a really good idea from a buyer perspective to try and lock in a period of exclusivity. So that element might be legally binding. There might be elements that relate to confidentiality, which are important to maybe both parties. So that element can be legally binding. And this is where you sort of need to think about, well, is there anything in this initial stage document that I want to be legally binding or not? But usually, generally, the, the documents themselves don't contain too much that's legally binding and it's just, it, it's just the document that sets out the initial commercial terms that, that you've come to. So then after we've got that, we've essentially got agreement on the commercials, then we generally move into due diligence. Now, due diligence is that phase where you're really investigating the practice. You're investigating that the practice um, financials are what you um, had 
seen earlier and had expected them to be in the information that you've received. And you're also investigating the legal risks and value and um, the, the legal elements within the practice. So that's our period of investigation, um, I guess you'd consider. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in the industry, you'll hear us refer to it as DD, <laughs> but DD, due diligence, it's all the same thing. We're investigating um, the risks um, in the practice. And so then after that, we move uh, into the contract phase. And quite often what happens is we've got the contract being drafted and negotiated at the same time as you're undertaking the due diligence. Um, and so when you finish the due diligence, hopefully you've got a contract ready to go um, so that you can then sign it. So that contracting phase is a phase where sometimes you can, it, you can end up um, in a lot of more forwards and backwards <laughs> than you might want. And that's where it's really important to have a tight process and I'll talk about that um, in a moment because I think the process around um, acquiring a practice is just so critically important. It's certainly critically important from a legal perspective but I think also from a general commercial perspective. Um, it, it's, you know, a really important thing to consider. Um, and, and I think it's interesting because you don't often think of the legal component as being the process that involves project management, but it really is because you're trying to get all of the parties you know, to um, to to finalise this contract, to get to agreement, um, and that ultimately that's almost a project management role as well as a role of, you know, understanding legal and commercial risks. So anyway, once you've done all of that, you get to the point of exchange and exchange means where you both sign the contracts and that's where you're generally committed to um, acquiring the practice. Um, sometimes we can have ways that you, you can get out. So sometimes you might have a subject to finance clause if that's required. But generally speaking, once you exchange, then you're committing to that purchase. And then um, we go through the process of moving the assets of the business over at, to that point of completion. And completion is where you pay your money. And you take over the business. So that's really, um, really the phases. You find your practice, you make an offer, you enter um, a head of agreement or a really simple one-pager, two-pager mainly, maybe. Um, you do due diligence, you get your contracts sorted, you exchange your contracts and then you complete. So that's what it looks like um, from, from that perspective. But one of the things that I just wanted to quickly talk about is how a methodology of viewing this helps to drive acquisition success. So that's the chronological approach. That's, you know, A, B and C and D. But there's a number of other things that you just need to be thinking about when you're buying. And the first one is, I think, one of the most important things is advanced preparation. 
Now, we talked about this when when we were, um, you, you know, in, initially discussing the market at the moment. And advanced preparation is a number of things, I think. Number one, it's about getting educated because the number of buyers that I have seen miss out on deals or, or get themselves trapped because they're not fully educated and they haven't understood the risks uh, and not the risks so much as the commercial reality and how to deal with that because um, and, and usually I see this when I sit on the other side so when I'm acting for the vendor or the seller and they have a client um, that is overly concerned about what might happen in the future versus what's commercial reality in, you know, in this process of buying a business. Usually it's due to lack of education. So the way you get across that, the way you get through that um, is by doing things like this, coming to um, a summit where you get to learn the process, um, seeking out information um, and, you know, listening to podcasts. <laughs> We've got a podcast there. We can um, send you the deal room. Um, or uh, just talking to people who are in the industry and who've been there and done that before. But also advanced preparation is about getting your deal team in place. And we talked about that before, Sally. Um, and also getting your finance ready to go so that you're... Um, so that you're just you're ready to go when the right practice comes to you. I mean, how often have you seen the situation before of um, buyers who haven't done this before and suddenly getting really concerned and, um, you know, overly conservative because they haven't understood the process? Is that something that you come across a bit? So people give me their key selection criteria. I'm like, what are your five most important things? Yeah. And I think about what they've told me and I go, I've got the perfect practice for you. And it meets all their five cr criteria. Yeah. And I show it to them. We go and walk through it. I send them all the financials. And then because they haven't done the tire kicking, because they haven't looked at others, because yeah. they haven't seen what else is on the market, they don't realise that that is the best practice for them and they miss out because they're, they're uncertain, they're not informed, they haven't done research. And a lot of doctors will say to me, I want to learn as much as I can, Sally, in, so that I'm doing my preparation and my background study so that when the right practice comes along, I'll know it is the right practice and I yeah. won't participate. So there are, the, there are the new people on the market that do miss out because they just think, oh, it's all too easy. Yeah. And when I make it seem easy, it's because I've been trying to do this since, you know, 2014. So Exactly. And but that's also the point of putting the right deal team in place. I think the thing is, you know, as buyers, you need to make sure that you're getting professionals that you trust, that you trust that know the industry that you're looking to buy into. Uh, because let's face it, um, the industries that we're talking about here, medical, dental, allied health, you know, they're all they can be very different to many other industries. You know, we've got a lot of, um, you know, service and facility arrangements and lots of other things like that, that that are specific to this industry. So you need someone who understands the industry. You need someone who or the deal team around you who understand acquiring a business so that you can say, okay, well, I don't need to worry so much about all of that. I can just put my trust in the people who have done this multiple times before. Um, 
And that's why we've put the dream team together for the summit. So I'm hoping. Uh, absolutely. There you go. You've, we've answered it all, Sally. We've answered it all. <laughs> so Dr. Wynne, um, who I've been assisting for a while, has popped a, a message up there. Yeah. It was something that I was thinking about. So with the chronological, we've come, we've found our practice, we've put an offer in, it's been accepted, we've worked through heads of agreement, yeah. and we're doing our due diligence. Yeah. Now, what if we find something in the due diligence that maybe it's a bit of a surprise or it's not as good as we thought it was going to be, yeah. is the deal off or then do you renegotiate? Right, okay. So this comes back to, um, so when you're acquiring a practice, you're acquiring it to get a certain value and you have to understand what that value is. So now the 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 elements that might have greatest value for you and, and are quite, you know, common in the industry are your client base, um, your uh, or your patient database, your sometimes the premises. So sometimes location is really important. You know, um, if it's been there for quite a period of time, um, and key staff. So the team they're in place. So they're you know quite often the the key elements of value um, that you're that you're looking at. Um, in the acquisition. Um, so if due diligence is popping up, it depends what the issue with due diligence is um, as to how you deal with it. If it relates to something that is part of the intrinsic value in the practice that you're looking at purchasing, then you need to work out, A, is this still something you want? If so, B, is there a room for negotiation then? And negotiation might be price but it might also be terms because if the issue relates to value that you think may not be there or may not transfer to you then that's when we bring in um, concepts like um, earnouts or retentions or deferred payments because we might say okay well we want to share that risk between us as the buyer and the seller and if the seller thinks that that value is going to be there into the future but our due diligence has raised questions with it, then we need to get clever with how we might structure the terms of the deal coming out of it. So, no, you have to understand the difference between red flags that might mean that you're dealing with something that is completely different to what you really want um, and what you thought you were getting versus um, issues that can occur occur in the ordinary course of a business or risks or concerns that come up that can be dealt with in other ways. So that would be my response to that. I don't know if you have any other things to throw in there, Sally. Uh, I just, this week I had a buyer um, think that the income for the practice that he was buying was quarter of a million dollar less than what it was purported to be. Yeah. So he had done very little due diligence when he put the offer he put a full price offer and then we got to contract stage and he went well what are the numbers like I'm like really you didn't look at the numbers before you made <laughs> the yeah. anyway I never failed to get surprised in this industry uh, but the other part of Dr Wynn's question was um, at what stage will the deal be taken off market once the seller has accepted an offer so for me, I believe that that's when the deposit has been popped into our trust account. Um, we've got an agreed heads of agreement and the purchaser doesn't want to receive any further offers and is happy to accept that offer. Do you concur? Yeah, 
Um, and, and, you know, once again, sometimes this relates to exclusivity that you might build into the terms. Um, and, um, you, you know, not everyone has, um, uh, has the same approach as you, Sally. So you have to be really careful as well as a buyer because, you know, that, that can be the situation because you start to spend a bit of money then, you know, when you're going through proper due diligence and getting the contract together um, and, you know, or getting your ducks in line for the acquisition. So I think that's where it's important to trust um, you know, the broker that that you, you're um, dealing with as well because, you know, I've seen lots of things in this industry and, and as I said, not everyone deals with it in the same way that, that you do. But um, because in reality, from a legal perspective, the only time that's absolutely locked in from a legal perspective is when you've got exchanged contracts. So you've got a contractual obligation. Um, but, the, but the other way you can build that in from a legal contractual perspective is, um, is in that heads of agreement, you, you know, having something in there that ties in an exclusivity period. And that's, that is a way that buyers can seek to protect, you know, the expense that they're going through then or, or the time and the emotional investment because it's emotional investment, you know. You, you get... As a buyer, you get connected to the business, and you know you can see yourself sitting in the uh, <laughs> in that ownership seat, right? <laughs> there is also an option I've seen in the past with a transaction that's been a little bit larger and a little bit more difficult. That that exclusivity period can be renegotiated. So if you feel yeah. you're not getting enough, we're not getting far enough along then it's, Mr. Bender, would you mind, could we have another one week, two week, 10 days of exclusivity period? Yeah. So I think it's important for our listeners to realise and remember that most things in a sale are negotiable. And yeah. it's really just a matter of asking the question because we're all human and if if we've got a willing buyer, if we've got a willing seller, then at the end of the day, the goal is the same for everyone and that is to settle. So yeah. unless there's some really mm, pressing reason why, most of the time you're going to be dealing with people that want the same outcome as you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, that's that's another point for why it's important to have that deal team that that is used to the business sale and acquisition space because you don't want advisors around you who are overly... Um, who who are who pick up risks that aren't likely to happen? Yeah. You know, it's all about keeping everything sort of, um, you, you know, sensible. Keep it real. Keep it real. Yeah, absolutely, and appropriate in a commercial context of you know the the type of practice that you're looking at purchasing. I think. Thank you. They're great responses. Um, does this take a long time? This whole process. So from go to why we found the practice. We've put the heads of agreement, it's been accepted, we've moved to contract stage. How long does it generally take then for a, a legal process of a um, business acquisition? Yeah, look, we did a transaction the other day, um, an acquisition that was just a couple of weeks. Um, do you know what? We actually, two weeks ago, we completed one that only took two days. <laughs> but we had <laughs> 
Yeah, we, we were moving very, very, very quickly on that one, though. Um, and you've got to have a super tight process to be able to do that. Um, and luckily we do, so, so we could do that. But that's by no means is that the, um, the norm. So I think your norm is for once you get to that point where, you, you know, um, you, you've agreed to purchase, so you've got that commercial terms document, you're probably looking at, um, you know, a month or so. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be even longer. You know, we actually had a matter that was brought to us once that um, that had been going on with the lawyers for more than eight months. In fact, the transaction itself had been going on for more than a year. Oh but the lawyers had been arguing for eight months. Can you believe it? Eight yes. months. Yes, I can. <laughs> and they've just been they've just been so caught up on uh you know on 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 details that were just ultimately not commercial nor important um and you, you know so it, it came to this point where the deal almost fell over um but uh, but they came to us then at that point they said is there any possible way you can save this deal and at that point I had a look through where everything was at I could see why it was being held up because the the position that had been taken by both lawyers, to be frank, was just ultra-conservative. Yeah. And so they were just butting heads. And then, of course, they had this um, the, this alpha position with each other and just wanted to win. <laughs> and unfortunately for them, win didn't mean get the deal done, right? And so we managed to complete it in one week from there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, but it's just about perspective, right? So so ultimately at the end of the day, if you've got the right process, it can be um, quite quick. If you're organised, you've got your ducks in line, you've got the right deal team, but unfortunately it can take longer than that if you're not ready, if the other side's not ready. 100%. Yeah. So I generally tell people three to five weeks, so I think that's quite appropriate. But something just sprang to my mind, did they sack their lawyer? Yeah, they did. So that's probably something a lot of buyers don't know. If your buyer is not doing the right thing by you, they work for you and you can sack your lawyer and you can find somebody who is commercially minded. Absolutely. So while we're talking about that, I'd like to share, um, if I may, a recent experience that I had. Uh, it, it fell over. It didn't go to settlement because my purchaser had a lawyer, a commercial lawyer who was helping, didn't think that it was going to plan, he sacked his lawyer and engaged a high court, high court lawyer, high court, high court solicitor. Oh. So we've got the best criminal lawyer in the land doing <laughs> a small commercial transaction. <laughs> that sounds unusual. <laughs> and the lawyer just got so bogged down in the minute. Yeah. And I said to the to the purchaser. Yes, I understand what you're saying. However, at the end of the day, what will that matter? Because that sentence is structured incorrectly. Your yeah. lawyer is pushing back on the sentence structure. I'm like, yeah. really? Yeah. This is not going to buy you a practice. Yeah. I said, you need to look above. You're a trained doctor. You need to see what's going on here. This is a psychological battle and your lawyer is looking for a win. Your yeah. lawyer is not looking to settle. So unfortunately yeah. that deal fell over and I'm still trying to sell that practice. But for everybody out there, please, 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 if you remember one thing, one gold nugget, 
engage a commercial lawyer. Do not engage a family court lawyer. Do not engage a um, criminal lawyer because everything's just going to get red pen, cross, 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 and the lawyers won't talk to me. They're always in court. They're preparing for court. They're debriefing from court. They don't ring me. They don't return my calls. They don't return their emails, and their assistants won't put me through to them. Mm -hmm. So please, it's so important if you're getting a business, get a commercial lawyer in your corner. You won't regret it. I think, you know, you're making some really good points there and, and um, I can say that because we deal with lawyers on the other side all of the time as well. So we feel the pain when there's, when there's a painful lawyer involved and, and generally it comes from um, dealing with legal teams that um, just where business sale and acquisitions are just not their bread and butter, not something that they do in day in, day, day out. So therefore, they don't quite understand. I mean, I mean, firstly, I think anyone who works in this industry, you're motivated by wanting to see people in businesses, you know, winning, get, you know, getting their new practice, um, get, achieving that dream in their life, you know, and, and seeing them then turn that into an amazing practice that one day they can sell. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, and that's what that's what this industry is about. But, you, you know, it, it, that's the personality that works in this industry. And I think the problem is if you're using your family lawyer or if you're using your conveyance or if you're using your litigation lawyer, you know, um, all of those are different types of personalities. Your litigator, you know, is always looking for the fight because <laughs> that's what they do. You know, your family lawyer is looking at other things, you know, and doesn't necessarily know how to make the, um, you know, the deal happen and happen smoothly. Um, you, you know, and, you know, your conveyancer doesn't understand all of the business aspects because, you know, when you're buying a practice, it's not like you're buying a house. You know, you're buying something that has got so many moving parts in it, mm. you know, that really need to move at the right speed at the right time and all together. You know, and you're dealing with people generally. You know, you've got you've got a team. You've got your, the staff that will need to transition. Mm. And, um, of course, you've got the patients. So, you know, there's a lot to think about and you just need to, um, I guess there's some of the tips, you know. Um, I, I think one of the things we're going to talk about were, were those tips with lawyers what to think about and um you, you know you've introduced it perfectly so we're we're ahead of the game in um in looking at that um age and stage of a lawyer so i i had some lawyer um push back on GST if it's a going concern and mm. and they said oh is that a new law and we're like yeah it's only been around 20 years <laughs> So as much as you love your uncle who's a lawyer and, you you know, if, if they're relatives, they want to do the right thing by you, but please be thinking of your own end in sight and realise that they may be too old to catch up on the new laws and changes that come through and they may not be fully versed in what you're asking them to do. So another one I had just recently, I had a GP father got his son to act for him and his son had never done a commercial transaction before. So it was just all over the shop. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess here's kind of like there's some simple things you can do when when you're interviewing your deal team, um, whether it's, uh, you you know, a lawyer or whoever else on your accountant um, or whoever else it is on, on your deal team. I think you've got to understand, you've got to ask them, you know, how many acquisitions do they do? How, how many practices have they acted for in, um, in, in acquiring? You know, that's, I think that's really important because um, many, you know, the kinds of lawyers that we're talking about here, your criminal lawyer, your litigation lawyer, you know, probably do hardly any at all. But even your average commercial lawyer probably really has at maximum maybe one um, acquisition or sale a month. You know, you really need, um, uh, you know, deal teams that are, um, you you know, are experienced in dealing with these transactions all the time. Um, and then you also need to make sure they understand your industry. I think that's the other element you should be And you're asking. doing 23 at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Significantly yeah. more. Now, <laughs> we talk about finding trusted advisors and getting your deal team together and interviewing people to be your support people. Mm. What about when it comes to thinking that you want to go into business with a partner? Mm. Are there pros, are there cons? What sort of red flag should they be looking for? What can they do to protect themselves? And I say to people, I met my husband when I was 38, I think. I said, how old were you when you met your wife? How long had you been looking? Did Mm. you fall in love straight away? Have you had your problems over the years? I said, so... I want you to think about getting a business partner the same way that you would think about getting a spouse because you're going to be in it for the long haul and if you pick the wrong business partner, it's going to feel like forever. <laughs> yeah. that's. Do you know, it's such, such a good point, Sally, um, because, you know, like I, I guess like relationships, um, business partnerships generally always start out really rosy don't they you know it starts out all peaches and keen um and you know quite often you'll sit down together and and some things will be discussed but in reality um i think some of the biggest questions are just never even dealt with right at that initial stage. So I think the first thing is is to know what questions that you should be sitting down and nutting out together. And you really need a checklist or you need something to help you guide you through those areas because some of them can be a bit uncomfortable to yeah. be talking about, but it's super important. Um, you need an agreement. So you need a shareholders agreement or a partnership agreement or whatever it is that relates to the structure that, that you're using. Um, and you um, you need to get it complete because I can't tell you the number of times I've seen um, business partners sit down and start this process and then stop and then get into business <laughs> together. And then, you know, I, I mean, look, I've got so many examples, but, um, you, you know, so often we, because of course we deal with um, businesses and practices at exit um, as well as when at, at the buying and acquisition stage. And, um, you know, so often we're approached by one person who might be a partner who's saying, look, I just want to get out, how do we do this? If the other person doesn't want to get out at that point and you don't have, you know, an agreement set up in relation to how to do that, you know, that creates a whole heap of issues. So the point is 
um, that you ask these questions right at the beginning, you don't shy away from the hard questions, you use a checklist and you get it done. You don't just start the process, you complete it. <laughs> so you need someone who's there making sure you complete it. I think that's the other thing as well. Terrific advice. Now, I am cognizant of the time and the number mm -hmm. of questions we have. So, Michelle, would you like us to start some questions now? Yes, that would be awesome. And we've got lots of questions come through. I think there's, there's 12 so far, so we'll try and work through them. Um, so first question, hi, Joanna. Um, if there is an existing staff that I really want to keep on, before I take over the practice at settlement, do I need to negotiate the employment contract with the existing staff prior to settlement? Um, for example, if there's an associate working there that you want to keep. So what protection do I have if they choose to leave and open across the road from me? Are their current uh, restraints in the vendor, in the vendor um, enforceable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is where it's super important. This is due diligence, as we were talking about before. Understand what your key value is and make sure that key value will transfer to you um, at that point um, that you're taking over the business. So so here we say, okay, well, we're looking at the value and we're saying the value is in um, some of our team. And so then you, you need to, uh, and you can do it in many different orders. So it's really about sitting down and working out what's appropriate in the particular situation but the first thing is generally what you'll have agreed to do in the in the um, purchase contract if you've already signed that is you'll have agreed to take on the staff on the same terms as they're being employed currently so that's the first thing you can't try and negotiate something that's worse for them and they're not going to want to stay if you're going to try and do that anyway um, but but I think it can be a really good thing to look at this concept of transition by giving um, giving the, um, the the employees reasons to um, see a future with you. So it's a really great idea to build that in from a legal context. Um, you have to be careful though, the seller may not want you having too much connection with the staff unless they're absolutely sure that you're going to complete. Now, if you've been a little bit crafty and decided, you know, you want to make sure you have ways to be able to get out of the contract even after you've signed it, so sometimes it might be conditional on finance, for example, the downside of that is that you might find that the seller really doesn't want you to have too much involvement with the staff moving forward. So there's lots of um, there's there's lots of things that you need to consider in your strategy of how you go about, um, you, you know, approaching those things. Great. Thank you. And um, a question that we, we have touched on, but what's the standard duration of due diligence, that time frame? Well, how long is a piece of string, Michelle? <laughs> um, usually, you know, usually um, you'll, you'll need at least a couple of weeks for due diligence. Um, the, the sort of in this industry, the practices, you know, aren't necessarily particularly complicated. It depends the size of the practice that you're looking at acquiring. But um, generally they're not complicated businesses per se. So, you know, you can really um, get away. Generally, I think you probably 
two two to four weeks is a sufficient period of time. Um, we work at for some um, very large organisations or multiple acquirers of um, often quite large size practices, and they themselves only generally take you know a maximum of four weeks. Um, and I don't think you want to drag your feet too long one I've seen quite a few times um buyers get we talked about this you know getting overly concerned um and and partly because they've not done enough education and not got the right deal team in place from the beginning but I've seen buyers get um overly concerned as they start getting into the due diligence and then taking longer and longer and longer and longer and that is just a pain for everyone involved so you just have to get yourself you know, sorted and get through it quickly, I think. What's your ideas on it, Sally? Thanks, Joanna. I was going to say that I don't think it's appropriate to just have that carte blanche written into the heads of agreement, due diligence two weeks. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to give you two weeks, but what are you going to do with that? What due diligence do you need? Tell me exactly which reports and I'll get them for you. But if you just say due diligence, that's exactly what you said, how long is a piece of string? Because all they really need to know is that the income is as it's purported to be and the expenses are what they're purported to be. Like you said, it's not a complicated business that we're selling here. Um, I generally request two weeks for due diligence, two weeks for finance. So then if the vendor doesn't go to settlement, his business has only been off the market for a month and potentially he's able to keep going and we bring the business back to market if it doesn't settle. Yeah. Longer than that, the vendor's getting upset because, A, from his perspective it's emotional there's all the staff confidence issues we don't want to disturb any patients yeah the longer it's unstable and people don't know what's going on the worse it is for all parties so yeah I completely agree absolutely um and the other thing this reminds me of is um uh, you know, the absurdity of due diligence requests that sometimes go <laughs> go through. I mean, you've probably seen them, Sally. You know, sometimes, you know, as you said, we're not really dealing with a particularly complicated type of business here. And, so, well, you know, I've seen pages of, you know, requests for due diligence items and are just, you know, and, and the poor vendors off there, you know, then, collecting a whole heap of stuff but the real problem for you as a buyer if that's happening on on your behalf is that you can't see the wood for the trees because you end up with a whole heap of information that's probably completely useless ultimately in what the decisions that you need to be making in the acquisition Mm. so I think that can you know that can really work against you if you go over the top in in what you're actually requesting. I think also there's a psychological warfare with the accountants as well because they don't want to put them in a position of risk. So they sometimes go into overdrive because they don't want it to come back on them if anything is found. Yes. And then from the vendor's perspective, we've got their accountant doesn't want them to sell. So then you can have this psychological warfare from one accountant that wants all the information, one accountant that doesn't want their vendor to sell because then they're going to lose a client. So it's completely uncooperative as well. So sometimes there's all those psychological issues. And that's why you need level heads in there somewhere, right, Sally? I think, you know, you need level heads saying, whoa, whoa, back, you know, that's not. This is what is appropriate for this type of acquisition that you're in the middle of right now. Um, So, you you know, sorry, 
<laughs> okay, Michelle, next question. Next question. So who is liable for existing long service leave of staff at the practice, the buyer or the seller? Yeah, so this is something that is an adjustment on um, uh, at completion. So you'll adjust. So so um, where long service leave is owed um, at the you, you know at the point by the vendor by the seller to the staff um, at the time of completion, then that's something that they adjust. I.e., they you pay less when you pay for the business in relation to the amount of long service leave you might be taking on board. But there's also potentially another way um, that it can be dealt with. So um, you as a buyer also potentially have the option um, to uh, to take on the staff without, um, without any of their um, liabilities coming across um, and being adjusted. And in that case, the vendor pays pays the staff out. So there's sort of two ways of looking at this. And actually, that reminds me, one of the things that um, I, I meant to say um, as we were talking before about this whole due diligence and, and um, general risk discussion is there's two different ways to acquire a practice as well. You can acquire shares if, if it's run as a company or you can acquire the business itself. So you might have a business share sale versus um, a company, uh, sorry, a share sale versus a business or asset sale. So there's two um, different ways they can look. And in many instances, there's a presumption in um, smaller practices um, that that acquiring companies or the shares um, has a higher level of risk um, and it can have a higher level of risk and it can require more due diligence. But it's really important to bear in mind um, that that the vendor might be in a much, much better tax position by selling the shares rather than selling the business, depending on how, how their structure um, is set up. So, so it's important not to just say, no, you can't um, approach uh, an acquisition as a share sale, as an example. You can't just have these flat lines. Everything depends on the situation. And it might very well be that we can find a way contractually to deal with risk, but also um, allow you to give the vendor a win that gives you some offsetting win as well. So, you know, it's all about thinking smart, not just having these flat blanket rules, I think. Yeah, good response. Thank you. Right, next question. While negotiating a deal to purchase a GP clinic, is there a formal way to guarantee that the current GPs working in that clinic will not leave after the purchase? Yeah, so there's um, there's a few ways to do this. Um, so you, you can you can look at this in a financial sense. So I, I mean, there's there's a couple of ways. Number one is contractually. So you um, come to an agreement that you, you know they'll work there for a particular period of time, and you sign a contract. Um, the the second way, and you might do the second way as well, not all, is is to also potentially hold um, a retention um, or hold back some of the payment for a period of time if you think there's any sort of issues. So remember, vendors like to get their money up front, of course, <laughs> for obvious reasons, but there might be other ways to, to build um, you know, protection against, um, against the value 
in in the practice leaving and that value could be clients it could be staff it could be you know the the principals themselves so um yeah one of the points from the lads last night is that they suggested um, giving equity to those key stakeholders in the business and inviting them to come on the journey and making it favourable for them with some equity payments. Right, okay. So and you're talking in that sense for, um, for, for other staff in the business other than the vendor. The GPs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. So we have a number of transactions on foot at the moment right now where that's the case. And quite often that can happen then as a sliding scale over time or, um, you, you know, yeah, there's, there's lots of creative ways to, um, to do that. Fantastic. Thanks, Michelle. Awesome. Uh, I'm a psychologist and there is an established practice with a property that I want to purchase from a retiring psychologist. Um, do, bank and, do banks and acquisition companies work with us or um, are we not in the medico sector? Um, a broker friend has mentioned to me that um, practice acquisitions is mainly GP and, and dental. Um, what are the people I sh- who are the people I should speak to um, with the steps that I need to take to acquire the practice? Can we table that for tomorrow night because we're talking with a financier tomorrow night? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, no problem. And I just say, just a general comment um, in relation to um, a psychology, was that a psychology practice, Michelle? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there, there's no fundamental difference as a whole in the, you know, in, in the acquisition of that type of business. And, of course, we'll talk about, um, talk about funding tomorrow in relation to the question about, um, you know, who to go for funding. But, um, you, you know, approaching the acquisition, everything that we've talked about the same is exactly the same for that kind of business. So don't feel that it's, um, that, that it's really massively different. All of the things that I've talked about and Sally's talked about so far are exactly the same. Fantastic. And can you comment on non-compete restraint clauses as part of the purchase agreement? Sure. Um, maybe if the question, I don't know if this is possible to throw more um, more, more context in or, or even, look, um, feel free to reach out and give me a call afterwards and I can talk to you about your specific concern. But restraints, you know, are almost always a component of this kind of um, transaction because you want to know that the people you're buying the practice off aren't going to go and set up next door um, and and pull their client base because this sort of in this sort of industry it's all about relationships you know um, there's such a strong relationship element and that's why restraints are um, even more important um, in this um, area um, than they are in many other different types of industries. So restraints are really important. They're absolutely normal, um, and, and it's about it's about finding appropriateness um, and clarity. <laughs> clarity. I've seen lots of people trying to find tricky, clever ways um, uh, to weasel and weasel words out of them. But um, yeah, it's it's a normal part of acquisition in this industry. If I can add my two cents worth, it's always important to read the fine print and whether it is five kilometres as the crow flies or by the route on the road that you would drive, 
The other thing is to remember that the restraint um, distance is always going to be significantly less in a CBD area as opposed to a regional or more suburban area even. Um, so we've, it, I've seen one kilometre non-competes in the city CBD location and mm -hmm. I've seen 20 kilometre for regional areas. So they're very negotiable and it is somewhat location specific, I feel. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing that you have to be aware of is um, you just have to be really mindful of exactly who you're applying it to. So we call it key person restraints as well in relation to, so it's not just the seller, because the seller might be an entity, you, you have to work out who are the individuals as well that you want to apply those restraints to and you just need to make sure your wording is tight so that you're also capturing anything that those individuals might do in any other sort of capacity. So, yeah, so that's restraints. So if I can give an example of I think what Joanna is talking about there, I sold a practice um, and the practice was sold in the proprietary limited name and the individual wasn't put a restraint on so the individual then went on opened up a clinic um, in his individual name and this went to the highest court in Australia and it was turned over because he'd done nothing wrong as a proprietary limited company and what he'd done as an individual even though ethically he'd done the wrong thing from a contractual position he hadn't breached. So like Joanna says, make sure it's tight and specific. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I, I've seen people try. <laughs> so, um, you know, th this is where you just need to make sure that uh, you, you're covering all of your bases. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Michelle. Great advice. Um, and what are the additional steps in buying a practice in a partnership? Um, well, the main element, I, I mean, whenever you're um, buying a practice, you need to think about structure as one of the first things that you're thinking about in any event. So the question of structure will be a bit different if you're going into this purchase with someone else rather than if you're doing it yourself so the first difference is structure as a whole um, and then then coming off the back of that the the actual um, acquisition process itself is is then not different other than um, you, you know dealing with the landlord um, you might both need to uh, provide information that is um, you know satisfactory to the landlord in relation to their consideration of how appropriate you are and uh, your ability to continue to run the practice um, and take over the lease but but the acquisition itself doesn't change it's just more about that structure element at the beginning and then making sure you've got the right documents in place to ensure that you have an agreed position between each of you in relation to important things. And as I said before, you know, you need a checklist to make sure you're covering off those things. But, you know, how are decisions made? Who's doing what? Um, how do you exit if it's not working? All of those sorts of things, um, are, you know, are really key. Mm. And without that, I've seen situations in the past where um, a doctor has wanted to sell his partnership um, percent and his other partner had the first right of refusal on any purchaser that he found. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to really, I guess, put some thought into how things can go wrong mm -hmm. and 
one of the main reasons why businesses come to me is because there's a partnership breakdown. And whether that's between the vendors, um, husband and wife, or it's partnership, um, and I guess the other two being um, age and stage, retirement and illness. So partnership breakdown accounts for probably 50% of the businesses that come to me. Yeah, wow. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Um, and, you know, I, I, and as I said, it, it can be difficult to think about this from the beginning, but I tell you what, it sure as hell harder if you're having to think about this after the fact. <laughs> it's um you know once you're at that stage where you're not agreeing on things it's just so much harder to work out an amicable um way of we talked about this last night with the consultants talking about having to come in and rebuild culture when once it had broken down Mm, mm, it impacts every part of the business yeah thanks Okay, next question. Is it crucial for me and my accountant to view the current and past financial reports, the the tax return forms of a clinic so as to assess its value? And at what stage is it convenient to release that information by the owner? Well, I think you're in luck because we actually have an accounting session coming up soon, I think. So I think I should probably leave our accounting friends um, to, to, you know, give the answer to that. And when, when's our accounting coming up? We'll have accountants on tomorrow night. Well, tomorrow. Tomorrow is accounting. Okay, there you go. You only have to wait until tomorrow. <laughs> so come on with that question tomorrow. Awesome. Now, is a commercial lawyer required for a starting up a practice from scratch? Yeah, um, absolutely, because when you're starting a practice, you need to think about structure. I mean, when you're starting a practice, you've still got all of the elements of a practice to think about. Um, But, you know, and I guess part of the question is when you're starting a practice, what's your ultimate end goal as well? Because I'm a big believer in um, start with the end in mind. Um, and so in doing that, if you're gearing yourself up um, for um, the end being an ultimate exit or whatever it is, you need to make sure that you've set yourself up right for that um, from the beginning because I tell you what, it can be very, very expensive to make some of these changes later down the track. So, um, you know, it's just a false saving to not get the right advice at the beginning. But even not just to pay to get them fixed, the amount of money that you can lose if it's structured incorrectly from a tax perspective. Oh, that is so that is so true, Sally. And I, I think, and you know, anyone who's on this call, I'm sure you'll um, you'll hear a bit about this um, tomorrow. But it's just the number of businesses that um, that that come to me and um, at, at the point of sale and just don't even understand the tax impact is just absolutely outstanding. Um, I, I just can't believe it. And so that's one of the things, you know, You once again, beginning with the end in mind, you really need to understand the structure that I'm entering into, the practice that I'm entering into, what does this all look like at the end of the day and how does that all work? And that includes the tax side um, at exit. Great. Thanks. 
Fantastic. Now, this question might be more of a question for Sally. Um, So buying a practice looks like making an aeroplane for me now, um, which sounds complicated, right? Um, (laughs) We're trying to take away the complexity. Um, Is it possible to involve an agent and they finish all the deal for you from A to Z? And if yes, how much is the agent going to charge and how can we trust them? Good question. I uh, generally work for the vendors, so the vendors pay my fee at settlement. Uh, I have been asked to act as a buyer's agent in the past. Um, I have taken on um, some some buyer roles. At the moment, I don't have capacity. I'm so busy. Um, There are specific buyer's agents out there, and I do have one who's based up in Queensland. I'm not sure where our person is. If it's Dr. Hashimi, I'm not sure where you are, but um, I can certainly introduce you to people that are buyer's agents. Um, but if you have a, a broker that you trust, then what we're doing today and this week and next week is introducing you to people that we trust. So if you mm-hmm. have a broker you trust, by association, you'll in, you'll trust the people that I introduce you to. So everyone that's on this webinar summit, sorry, that we're interviewing and chatting with this week and next week, those are the sort of people that can help you finish the deal with all parts A to Z covered. And if what you need is external to these eight people, I probably know someone anyway that I can introduce you to. And I think I'd just make a call out there to say don't get overwhelmed, Um, even though, you know, it may have been the first time that you've really been exposed to all of the detail of buying a practice that we've been going through and will go through in the next few days. But the thing is, you don't need to know all of this. It's it's that over, you need to understand the overview and you need to understand how to find the right people. But once you've got the right people, they're the ones who drive it for you. Yeah. They're the ones who make it happen. They're the ones who protect you. Yeah. Um, so, so, so don't feel overwhelmed, but just understand um, how, how to go and get the, the right help and how to get educated. Yeah, and ask for help. Lots of people say to me, Sally, I, I don't know. Can you help me? So 100%, we're here to help. Absolutely, 100%. Fantastic. Now, a question from Rahul. He said, great session. Thank you. Um, Can a clawback clause be added to the agreement? Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, they're clawback clauses um, are called many different things they could they can be called retentions they can be called um, they can be called deferred payments they could be called earnouts they they all sort of have slightly different meanings but if you're talking about um, you require um, a certain level of performance within a particular particular period of time in order for you to pay a certain amount of money absolutely you can um and and when you say clawback you sort of you know that wording um suggests you know funds have been paid and then you you get the funds back usually that's not the way it happens usually it's a staggered payment on the basis of achieving certain parameters or certain goals Fantastic. Now, um, another question, is it the done thing for someone to work in the practice for three months prior to committing to buy? 
Oh, uh, gosh. I mean, do, actually, do you know what? I've, I've had a few businesses um, and practices where, I mean, look, actually, stepping back, it's quite common, it's not at all uncommon for um, businesses or practices to be sold to existing staff. So that's the first thing. So, you, you know, are there existing staff there? Might they want to buy it? Are you existing staff in, in a practice? Might you want to buy into it? That's quite a normal thing. Um, going and working in a practice that you're looking at buying, um, sorry, did they say unpaid as well? Is that what they said? No, I think it's a paid to paid paid work. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know. So it's certainly not common. <laughs> What's your thoughts on it, Sally? Yeah, sure. So the reason that I got into business broking medical practices in the first place, I did doctor recruitment for years and years, and I um, was doing GP perms and locum recruitments. And within a course of about two months, I had three people ask me. Um, or tell me, Sal, we don't want just a locum. We want a locum with a view to that person taking over our patient base so that we can be comfortable in the knowledge that our patients are in a safe pair of hands. So it does happen in this industry. People will do a locum and then they think, oh, yeah, I like the beaches, I like the place here, I, I like the township, uh, there's good university, there's good um, places of worship for my family, my wife has got suitable employment here, I could live here. And they will do a locum with a view. So that is a thing in this industry. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, and could you please clarify what a share sale is versus a business sale? You were talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. 100% I can. So share sale, so if you, um, there's many different types of structures that might be used um, for a practice, but um, if it is a company um, entity, then the company has shareholders and um, if you're buying in, you might buy either the shares, so you take the whole company, and um, uh, or if you're buying the business, the company sells the business, i.e. sells the assets um, out of the, the entity. But it's just one of those things that's easier to understand when you've actually got, um, a, you know, a hard example in front of you and your advisors can run through with you, well, what does this look like in this way, a share sale way? What does this look like in a business sale? So if I could perhaps propose an example, I sold a business that was um, medical recruitment and the business had agreements with each of the local health service districts and those agreements were linked to the ABN. So because the business or the value was linked to the company, we had to have a company sale, which is a share sale. So we sold 100% of that company. Mm. Excellent. And this question kind of follows on. Is it worth offering shares to non-doctors, for example, the practice manager, a practice nurse, to help drive and expand the business? Yeah, so um, so it can be, uh, and you know, I've seen lots of different um, industry in industries, interesting um, approaches um, over time um, in different practices. Um, but you know, it can be within the bounds of um, you know any requirements of your particular industry. 
or restrictions, I should say. <laughs> no problem. And the next question is, um, can we have clarity for um, the company structure? For example, should we purchase under a proprietary limited structure or a trust? I've seen some practices being held in a trust. Can you advise the pros and cons of both, please? Yeah, so that's, once again, the, this is something that has, you know, a large accounting and tax element to it. Um, so what trusts, the difference between um, companies and trusts are really the taxation point. So trusts are actually not an entity themselves. They're, uh, they're, they're almost an arrangement. A trust actually relates to a trust deed that... Um, that groups together a whole heap of people who are the beneficiaries of the trust. Um, and so, um, and to add further confusion, you can have what's called a unit trust, which is something that you might use for um, non-related parties, or a family trust, which is the sort of thing that you might be using um, as part of your family in investment approach. And so this is the sort of thing that you take to your accountant, you look at understanding how the money flows through each of them. Um, the larger you get, the more likely it is that a company will be um, a really good structure for you, but there's very different approaches um, to both of those entities on um, on ta with taxation at sales. So you just have to be careful and understand what those are at the beginning. Um, yeah, and and you have to understand the, the one thing I've seen happen a lot in this industry is um, is over over complexifying structure I don't know if you've seen that Sally but I just it for like it's a thing here don't you think and um so you just have to be careful that you're not sold into a concept that's too complex I'm a big believer in the kiss principle you know keep it simple um and you know what buyers you, you as buyers um and, you know, and we deal with buyers a lot in lots of different industries as well, uh, sometimes get very confused with really weird far-out structures. So you have to be careful not to create that because when you're trying to exit, it can have an impact. Um, in fact, we've just got one at the moment um, and this one is a dental practice that was um, that related to uh, you know a number of partners who have been part of this dental practice, and it is. And I have seen. I I have. I promise you, I have seen perhaps close to one zillion and one structures in my time, different approaches, but this has got to be the most complex. And it had trusts here and companies there and trusts there, you know, the service trust and, the and you know, service trusts are quite common here, but but the overuse of them. And do you know what um, the partner, the, the partners are now dissolving, trying to unwind this is just a gigantic effort and so you just got to be super careful don't get over overly complex mm. I can see you nodding Sally you've obviously seen some similar things oh look I look at them and it, they do this your accountants will do this and they will urge you to minimize your tax 
So that's great. You're, you're not paying any tax for the last 20 years, but what you're also not showing is any profit. Yeah. So when it comes to me and I have to save people, but it's a really profitable business, but Sally, it says zero down the bottom. Where's all the money hidden? So the accountants do a lot of magic and what I have to do is reverse that and do all the, the normalisation and try and find out where all this money has been squirrelled away. So when you get your accountant being too fancy, it makes it difficult for me, which when you're listening to me try and explain it to you, your eyebrows come together and you go, I don't get it, and then your subconscious goes, there's a risk. Yeah. So. Learn from that and if you find it's uncomfortable, then thinking to the future and thinking, like Joanna said, start with the beginning in mind. The way you set it up now is what you're going to be selling it. If it gets too small for you, too big for you, you retire, you get sick, whatever happens, you are one day going to have to sell it. So you don't want to be planting that seed of doubt in the purchaser that you are looking to sell to in the future. Because if I can't understand it, I can't explain it. Yeah. And then I'm going to sell them something else. So remember that your practice that I'm going to be selling one day is going to be one of 23. So I'm going, I go with the KISS principle. If it works for me, then I can make it work for someone else. But you have to try and think, how is this going to look to someone else? It might look amazing to your accountant and your accountant's going to pat themselves on the back. But when you come time to sell that asset, it's going to be really hard. Yeah, I agree. Great advice. Um, now, just on the topic of accountants as well, should we engage an accountant or a lawyer to set up the business structure or both? Yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, there's an easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and legally, what structure is ideal to protect the owners from litigation against the practice? Yeah, Um so I should have actually given a disclaimer right in the beginning. Everything, anything that I say here is just general advice and not intended to be relied on. You need to get tailored advice. But um, generally speaking, so number one, there's, there's um, you know, the question about what the, what the structure is of the business that you're operating out of. Um, and number two relates to the own, your own ownership structure of assets. Um, and just as a simple rule of thumb not to be relied on without getting specific advice um, from, uh, from a lawyer who understands it um, and, you know, accounting as well, um, you generally try and keep assets out of your own name um, and you try and silo the assets in the person within your family who doesn't, um, doesn't run uh, a business or practice. So, you, you know, that's um, you, you sort of um, silo risk and you, you separate risk and assets um, on an in-person basis, basically, is the simple answer to that. Yeah, great advice. Um, and this might be a question for Sally. Is it an appropriate time to buy a dental practice? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I have to agree with that. You know, I, I think it's a great time to um, be a buyer at the moment. Um, I, I, I really think it is, but you, you're, you're in there with a lot of competition. So you just got to get your ducks in a line. You've got to get ready. So when you pounce, you can be quick. Be a professional buyer, be ready. Yeah. Um, 
pre-COVID, I was getting ready for the uh, um, the baby boomer tsunami. So there's a lot of practices out there that are owned by people that are ready to retire. There's lots of dental practices that will come to market. There's lots of medical practices that will come to market. So with the disruption of COVID, a lot of these people are now more ready than ever because they're concerned for their health. They don't want to be exposing themselves more than they have to. They've worked hard all their lives and now they're at a massive tipping point where they go, I'm not prepared to get sick. I'm not prepared to, to lose everything that I've worked so hard for. And mm. there is so much activity out there with the older business owners that now is the best time in the history of the world to buy a practice. Mm. Dental, medical, allied health, everything. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Great, great advice. Um, now, this is the last question. So, will I be able to buy a practice if I hold a 19A exemption? I'm from the UK and I'm still under my 10-year... Um, Moratorium. Yeah. And I, okay. So, that was 19AB, Michelle, was it? Uh, just says 19A. A, 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 A and AB we have. So, we talked about this one last night and I suggested that until you're until your restrictions, specifically the AA, are finished, then it's now is not a good time to buy a practice. Um, I've got practitioners at the moment that I'm in contractual stage with at the moment. They have got a short period of time left for their tenure moratorium. Uh, there are ways and means around getting short-term exemptions, as you're probably aware that you can get the six-month exemption. So for the last six months, you can start and get your uh, practice but I have known of people that have got a six-month exemption three times in a row so the other way to think about getting exemptions from your 19AB if you can go into education you'll get an education exemption if your spouse is billing you'll get an exemption if you can get into various pathways if you are supporting people that are mentally or physically very unwell be it children or aging parents or siblings then you will get exemptions. So there are ways you can get exemptions. However, as the new practice buyer, then you can keep the evidence of all your advertising. And if you're unsuccessful in getting a, um, a GP to come work in your practice, then you show the evidence of your advertising, you show the lack of results, and then you lodge another six-month exemption. So whilst it, there is a risk, it's up to you to mitigate that risk and see what you can do to make sure that you're not exposed. Um, you can work at your own practice. You can recruit other doctors to work in your practice. Remembering that if there is a DWS-exempted Medicare provider number there, then you can transfer it so long as it's been active within the last 12 months. If there is someone working in the practice that you want to buy that is filling a DWS-exempted Medicare provider number, you can terminate that person and you you can uh, ask that they close their Medicare provider number and you'll be able to take that over. So there are a few examples. It's just another degree of difficulty, but it's not impossible. Awesome, Sally. <laughs> you know your stuff. <laughs> now, we had one more question just slip in and um, and this kind of brings me on to my next discussion is um, uh, where are we able to get dental practice sales information 
ring Sally. So Sally's available um, and get in contact with her, send her an email um, or give her a call. And likewise, Joanna is available for people to, you know, um, ask questions and, um, and continue the discussions that we're having here. So please reach out to them. Um, we are here to help and, um, and they're more than happy to, to continue the conversations that some of the questions might have brought up that, that we've been answering this evening. I just uh, just like to just throw in there um, just a, a quick uh, reference to the Deal Room podcast. Uh, it, that's a podcast where I talk all about business sale and acquisition um, activity, and, and it's uh, in fact Australia's top podcast in this area. So highly recommend you head over to um, Apple your Apple Podcasts or uh, your favourite podcast player and look for the Deal Room podcast. Sorry, I hope that was okay, but uh, I just wanted to give our listeners a little uh, intro into the deal room. That is it free, Joe? Joanna? Is it free? Sorry? Is it free? Oh, 100% it's free. Absolutely. We're up to episode 152. Um, and, you know, and Sally and I uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago released an episode discussing all the sorts of things as a bit of a highlight for you to listen to in relation to all of these things that uh, we're covering here on the summit as well. Those 102 podcasts, they're all available. They can listen to them. Yeah, the, the 152 are all there. You can go back through the archives and there's a whole heap on what to look out for um, when when you're buying um, a business or a practice. So um, for our listeners today. Yeah. That's a fantastic resource. And I think, you know, it's a great opportunity to kind of do some exercise, put the earbuds in and um, and, and listen and, and learn while you're doing it and um, getting some fresh air. So, no, that sounds amazing and um, I'm sure there's so much value in there alone and as we were talking about at the start of this, to get your team together, you know, you need to research and, and do all of that stuff as well. So um, that is a fantastic resource. And just to let you know that replays are available in the portal and this one will be available. So it's a great resource for you to keep and, you know, go back in there if you if you need to. So Thank you very much. Oh, did we just get three more questions? <laughs> oh, we've got some more, have we? <laughs> uh, we've got, I would like to sell my practice. Can you help? I'm sure Sally is um, is going to be more than happy to help you. So absolutely. And can you share the name of the resource? So we've just shared that podcast in the chat there for you. So if you just click on that chat. Oh, how do we get the replay sessions? You would have received an email um, that had some login details. It was a it was a, a grant for you to access um, the online portal. So check your emails for that. If you don't have that or if you can't find it, just email info at marketingpractices.com.au and I will help you get login details for that. So um, it is a portal where all the replays are going to go and also um, there's a whole bunch of other resources on those replay pages as well that you can look at um, that we haven't covered off on here but just some tips and tricks and other resources in there. So definitely worth going in there and having a look at that. Fantastic. That is everything. Thank you so much for everybody. Um, it is an absolute pleasure to be sharing um, our evening with you. Thanks, everyone, for attending. Thanks, Michelle and Joanna, for your support tonight. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Joanna. Take care. Bye-bye.
Well, that's it for this episode of the Deal Room Podcast, which of course was drawn from our webinar where we talked all about the legal process when buying a medical, dental or allied health practice. Now, we hope you learned something useful for your acquisition journey. And if you're considering acquiring a medical, dental or allied health practice, then just head over to our website at www.thedealroompodcast.com where you find a direct link to our Legal Eagles at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of business acquisition. And you'll also be able to find a link to our co-hosts, Sally Stewart of Link Business Broking and Michelle Taylor of Marketing Practices. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then don't forget to pop over to your favorite podcast player and hit the subscribe button. Maybe also leave us a review. We'd be ever so grateful. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki from the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen. that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.